Hi, welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy, objectivism. I'm doing a series on refuting historical philosophers and we've done some heavy hitters like Descartes, the I think therefore I am, and uh, David Hume, the is-ought dichotomy. Today is a little confection, a little dessert. It's Bertrand Russell, whose picture you should be seeing a small thumbnail of up in the top. Bertrand Russell is a uh, late 19th century, uh, long-lived, long-lived, I think you're supposed to say, philosopher. He died in, I think, the 70s, maybe the 60s, late 60s, but he lived a long time. And it used to be said of him, he was insane. Now that's a pun because he was in the group called SANE, which was a group advocating unilateral nuclear disarmament to quote, end the arms race, which would have been a form of surrendering to the Soviet Union. Uh, but I heard that actually from Ayn Rand that Bertrand Russell was insane. A little pun. Okay. There are two things of Russell's that I want to take up. Um, it's the first one that's the little bonbon or dessert. And the way it was taught to me in my very first class in philosophy as an undergraduate was through a much simpler example, a much simpler um, illustration of the same basic fallacy, uh, sorry, not fallacy, paradox that he puts forward. So this is not the way yet that he formulates it, but it's the same paradox. Consider Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown, if he is Brown, we'll say he's well-named. If Mr. Brown is white or some other color, we'll say he's ill-named. Same thing, Mr. Short, if he's short, he's well-named. If he's tall, he's ill-named. Okay, what about Mr. Ill-Named? Who? Suppose a perverse philosopher adopts the name for his child, Ill-Named. So the story goes, as it was put to me in 1960. Mr. Ill-Named is, if he's Ill-Named, then he's not the way his name says he is. So if he's ill-named, he's well-named. But if he's well-named, he is the way his name says he is. So if he's well-named and his name is ill-named, then is, he is ill-named. So if he's well-named, then he is ill-named. If he's ill-named, as a description of it, then he's well-named. Paradox. So what do you think is the answer to that? You know, a paradox is a seeming contradiction. 
there are no actual contradictions, but you can't see why it isn't a contradiction. Sounds like a contradiction, Mr. Ill-named is well-named, but then if he's well-named, he's ill-named, and if he's ill-named, he's well-named. Well, before I give you the answer to that, let's take up a more highfalutin form of it. We say an adjective is impredicative. I am in front of predicative. If the thing that you apply to is not uh, as its name suggests, it's the same as Mr. Ill name. So word, the word word is a word. So that's predicative, not impredicative. But the word dog is not a dog, it's a word. So dog, D-O-G, is impredicative. Some words apply to themselves as words, like English. The word English, particularly if you spell it out in the English spelling, rather than have the German version, is in English. So it's predicative. But the word Spanish is not in Spanish. Espanol would be the Spanish for Spanish. So the word short is short, but the word long is not long. So long is impredicative. Uh, dog is impredicative. Most words are impredicative. Only a few describe themselves or apply, apply themselves. So what about the word impredicative? Impredicative, does it describe the way the word is? Well, does impredicative apply to itself? If it does, then it's not impredicative. But if it's not impredicative, then it is impredicative. So you get the same thing if, it, if your mind isn't too boggled. Uh, and they're all kind of variations on this statement is false. Is that false? This statement is false. Is that false? If it's false, then it's false that it's false, which means it's true. If it's true, then what it says is the case. So it's if it's true, it's false. You see, it's the same thing. Now, believe it or not, this discovery of this paradox in formal logical terms, which we'll get to now, was considered a disaster. And I have a quote from Mathematics, The Loss of Certainty by the renowned commentator or historian of mathematics, Morris Klein. And he says on page 205 of Mathematics, The Loss of Certainty, maybe you're seeing it reversed. This contradiction strikes at the very notion of classes of objects, a notion used throughout mathematics. Hilbert noted that this paradox had a catastrophic effect on the mathematical world. 
Mathematicians now have risen above it. They, they um, kind of avoid it rather than solving it. And I want to give my solution to it. But what does he mean about classes? Well, the technical formulation of it that Russell gave was consider the set of all sets that are not members of themselves. The set of all sets that are not members of themselves. Because some sets are members of themselves, like the set set is a set. The set idea is a set. Idea is a kind of set. A set, no, set is a kind of idea in the mind. So the concept idea includes itself. It's the same thing over again, you see, but it's in terms and it's in terms of set theory, which was taking over mathematics. So it seemed that set theory due to this paradox had a contradiction in it and mathematics was shaken to the core. Hilbert was the preeminent mathematician of all in 1900. And that's when approximately this paradox surfaced when Russell raised it. The set of all sets that are not members of themselves, so non-self-referring sets, can't either be self-referring or not self-referring. Now let's go back to uh, Mr. Ilnink to get begin to get a handle on this. What about Mr. Jones? Is Mr. Jones well-named or ill-named? Uh, I can't answer that question. He's neither. Also, there's a third possibility. Name applies to the person, name doesn't apply to, uh, contradicts the person, and name isn't meaningful. Neither applies or, or doesn't apply. Now that won't solve all of these because you can just, uh, the set of all sets that are not members of themselves, you can, you can say meaningless and false apply in the same bucket. It either applies to itself or it doesn't apply to itself. So rather than saying this statement is false, what if I say this statement is meaningless? Uh, impredicative spans uh, different from the predicate and the predicate just doesn't apply. But what Mr. Jones does, it doesn't escape all versions of the paradox, but what it does is it points to a fact that has not been taken into account, which is the application of well-named or ill-named, predicative or impredicative, uh, true, false, or meaningless, is a two-step process. The first step 
is to look at the nature, the characteristics of the thing you're dealing with. Like you look at this child and you ascertain, well, what are his attributes? What are his characteristics? Well, he's six months old, he's crying, he's small, he's uh, tender, he's pink, he... Okay, so you can list his characteristics. Now, after, you know, if his name was Mr. Pink, and he was pink, you could then, you could compare in the second step of the process, you can compare the definition of the term you're dealing with to the nature of the thing in question. And if Mr. Pink is brown, you can say he's ill-named. If Mr. Pink, if Mr. being the name of the baby. So that you can do, but it's a two-step process. The first step is to look at the nature of the thing that you're trying to either describe or say is different from how he's described. But what do we do about the baby called Mr. Ill-Named? I took a baby because he's just been christened that by his parent, but you're Mr. Pink or you're Mr. Ill-Named. So what do we say about Mr. Ilname? Well, I'll give you a little tip to simplify it. The exact same problem will arise for Mr. Well-named. And it's easier. It fits into the mind better. So let's take Mr. Well-named. What is his nature? Before we decide whether he's well-named or ill-named, what is his nature? Well, he's got this height and this weight and this color and he's doing that. Yeah, but what is his nature in regard to being named prior to us deciding whether he's well-named? Well, he's got a name, but is he well-named? See, he's pink before we then look at the term pink to see if it applies to him. But is he well-named before we compare him to the definition of the term well-named? No, he's neither, before he's named, he's neither well-named or ill-named. So it's a two-step process. And if the thing fails at the first step, it doesn't go on to the second step. So that's what happened with Mr. Jones. You say, well, Mr. Jones has this feature and that feature and that feature. Well, is he Jones-ish? That, that doesn't mean anything. Similarly, to be well-named is goes in a circle, right? He's well-named if he is as his name describes him. Well, what is he? Is he as his name describes Well, his name describes him as having a, a good name. Well, is his name good or isn't it? Well, I have to look at what he is. Oh, is in this regard, he's got the attribute being well-named if he's well-named. So it goes in a circle, it's an infinite regress. There is no reference to any characteristic for Mr. Well-named any more than there is to Mr. Jones. It doesn't apply. Now here's the tricky one. What about Mr. Name Not Meaningful? Mr. Unclassifiable. 
All right, we look at his features. It, is his name classifiable? Before I tried to classify it, can't answer that question. There's no there there, as Gertrude Stein said of Oakland. So Mr. Name Not Meaningful has a name that's not meaningful. Oh, but wait a minute, that's what his name says, Mr. Name Not Meaningful. You're saying his name is not meaningful or Mr. Non-classifiable. You're saying his name is non-classifiable. So he is the way his name says he is. Not so fast, Charlie. His name doesn't say anything about him. So it's, it, it remains true that Mr. Name Not Meaningful has a name that's not meaningful. And that's the end. You don't go on to say, well, then is his well-named. No, his name doesn't say anything. So you can't go to step two. His name does not say anything. Now I gave you the statement I am making is false. What about the statement I am making doesn't say anything? There's no reference to reality, doesn't say anything. The statement I am now making is empty words. Doesn't say anything. That statement is empty words and doesn't say anything. But no, that's what it says. No, it doesn't say anything. But it says it doesn't, no, it doesn't say anything. Think of the statement is fully on a par with Baba. And you can't say, well, Baba says it's Bashi. It doesn't say anything, it just sounds. So the utterance, this statement, doesn't say anything, doesn't say anything. It doesn't say that it doesn't say anything. It doesn't say anything, neither about itself nor about anything else. Cute, huh? No one, to my knowledge, has ever quite seen this. And it ties in with the big philosophical point. The point is that a consciousness conscious of nothing but itself is a contradiction in terms. That's Ayn Rand's phrase in Galt's speech. A con and I made reference to this in refuting Descartes. So my refutation of Descartes is also an answer to Russell. A consciousness conscious of nothing but itself is a contradiction in terms. Before I could by itself as consciousness, it had to be conscious of something. In the same way, a statement that refers only to its own referring is a contradiction in terms. Before it could refer to itself, it would have to, ref to its own referring, it would have to refer to something. I call this the fallacy of pure self-reference the fallacy of attempting to say, here's an act of consciousness that's purely about itself and not about anything outside itself. Here's a consciousness conscious only of itself. Here's a statement that talks only about itself. 
There's no statement to talk about until it makes reference to reality. Now, what's important here is once, once a statement does, or a term does refer to reality or statement does say something, you then can apply it to, your, to itself because it then has content. So you certainly can turn consciousness back on its previous act of being conscious of the world to be conscious of your consciousness of the world. You can certainly say that all short statements are misleading is a contradiction because it's a short statement. So you can say that that's false, not that it's meaningless. All short statements misleading is false. And you can say, I know nothing applies to itself. If you know nothing, you don't know that. So that's false, that's not meaningless. I know nothing first means I don't know whether there's a sky. I don't know whether I have a hand. I don't know that two and two is four. And this is what Descartes tried to hypothesize or imagine. So first you say there are topics out there that I'm claimed to know. If I say I don't know anything, then I don't know any of them. And I don't know that I don't know anything. So the statement contradicts itself, it wipes itself out. And that's called the fallacy in objectivism. It's called the fallacy of self-exclusion. And it's committed all over the place, particularly by um, people philosophizing who are not in the profession. like. There are no absolutes, people think. Oh, is that an absolute? So it has content. First, it says, are no absolutes. Uh, you should uh, be nice to people is not an absolute. Uh, you should uh, work for a living. That's not an absolute. You should always take the quickest way home. That's not an absolute. There are no absolutes. Oh, wait, you decided an absolute. So first, the statement has content by referring wrongly to reality, and then it can be applied to itself. So a statement's utterance has to be consistent with its own meaning. But first, it has to have meaning by referring to the world, not itself. So that's why I call it the fallacy of pure self-reference, grounded self-reference, reference to something outside the statement, first allows for secondary self-reference. Well, that's a kind of funny way to put it. There is such a thing as grounded self-reference. First, you look at the world, then you look at your looking at the world, but you can't be just a consciousness, conscious of nothing but yourself. What are you looking at? I'm looking at my looking. You're looking at what? I'm looking at my looking at my looking at my looking at my. First, there has to be that which is the object of awareness before you can reflect on the action of being aware of that thing. But you can do that. Secondarily, you can have grounded self-reference. It's just pure self-reference that only, you know, a snake swallowing its own tail. That is impossible. 
and all these fallacies uh, commit that except one. Let's let's just end the the fallacy section with that. All, all these paradoxes, I mean, you know the barber paradox. The barber in a certain town shaves everyone and only those who don't shave themselves. And for the purpose of the paradox, the barber grows a beard too. So one answer is the barber is a woman. Okay, barber shaves all and only those who don't shave themselves. Does he shave himself? Well, if he does shave himself, then there's someone he shaves who doesn't, who does shave himself, and that contradicts the statement. And on the other hand, if he doesn't shave himself, then he doesn't shave all the people who don't shave themselves. So that is a different kind of paradox. Sounds the same. Russell thought it was the same. But the answer there is there is no such barber. You've given a contradictory description. So I might say there's a circle that's square. Is it circular or square? Well, there is no such circle. So there is no barber. I'll give you the one more example you may have heard of. What happens when an immovable object meets an irresistible force? Does it move or not? Well, if there's an immovable object, there can't be an irresistible force. Or if there's an irresistible force, there can't be an immovable object. So the setup has, contains a contradiction. So that's a different kind of uh, fallacy than the pure self-reference. That's fallacy starting from contradictory description, like square circle. It's no biggie. Now we have some questions. I wanted to go into Bertrand Russell's concept of number, but what's really more interesting is my concept of number or my definition. It's not, it's the same concept. My definition and understanding of numbers. So why don't we do that next time and, and go to these questions that are left over. So the first one I see in the chat from Shazbot. What about the argument for God, which says, because I've argued that there are no, <clears throat> there are no rational arguments for God, <clears throat> which says, because it's in the Bible, duh, that's the one that most people remember. Well, I don't know if that's the one most people remember, but it's a classic textbook, a case of a circular argument. Why should we believe in the Bible? And what will you be told? Well, it's the word of God. But we are trying to use the Bible to show there is a God. So it argues in a circle. That's, I would say anybody who gives that argument is beyond reach anyway. It's not an argument. Because somebody told me is not an argument, it's a fallacy. So um, that's not worth discussing any further. Uh, Jamie Hernandez, uh, no, I'm sorry, Liam Miller, we'll get to Jamie in a, a second. Liam Miller last time asked, is the left pushing gun control 
because they know an economic collapse is coming and they want as many people disarmed as possible. No, there are three errors in that. They don't know any economics. They have no idea that an economic collapse is coming. If it is, I don't know if it's coming. So that part is wrong. Uh, if it were coming, if they knew somehow God told us, the God who wrote the Bible told us that an economic collapse is due in uh, August, uh, why would they want to disarm the population? They'd want to go out and buy guns, maybe. But you don't have to because that's the third fallacy in the question. An armed populace is no protection at all against tyranny. None. Domestic tyranny. It's a great protection against foreign country taking over like Russia is in the, trying to do in the Ukraine. But if you're talking about a, a dictatorship arising in the US, there's not going to be anybody, if it can rise, that's going to fight for freedom. You and I are going to be alone with our rifles against hordes and hordes of rifled Republicans wanting to establish Trump as the head of a theocratic state and some leftists who want to put in who? Bernie Sanders is the head of a socialist state. You're not going to have anybody fighting against tyranny. They'll be fighting against the kind of tyranny that they don't want and in favor of the kind of tyranny they do want. So ideas that make a country go to dictatorship and those ideas have to be held by a majority. So if things have gotten to that state, like imagine you armed everyone before Hitler took over. I, and I think there were a lot of arms. They would have been used to support Hitler. Now the communists would have used them to shoot against the fascists to establish their form of dictatorship, but it's not like there'd be some freedom lovers. It's not like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington types would be there fighting for freedom. I mean, there might be five or 10 of them, but the cultural climate, the philosophical climate has to be prepared before a dictatorship can rise. So uh, by then it's too late to rely on the same populace that that is, doesn't even understand freedom, fighting for freedom. Okay, that's the answer to that. Now there was a question from Jamie Hernandez, but we're a little bit over time, let's see. Isn't this self-reference issue also related to Gödel's incompleteness theorem about systems that can't be proved using themselves, if I get the interpretation? That is a matter of controversy. I have argued that publicly. The statement behind Gödel's theorem is this statement cannot be proved in the language of symbolic logic that we're using. For short, this statement can't be proved. Well, if it can be proved, then we got a contradiction because you proved that, it, that what can't be proved can't be proved. 
If you can't prove it, then you've got an incompleteness because by the preceding argument, you say, yeah, you can't prove that in any valid system. So you say, yeah, th that statement can't be. But then there's a true statement you can't prove in your logic. Now, I think the same fallacy is committed, but the defenders in math that I know argue, no, 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 it's not really about that statement. It's about a very formal thing. Um, and some people even told me that Gödel posed his proof to show that you can't do mathematics without meaning. See, in the 19, late 19th, early 20th century, meaning, and what this is the number theory we'll get to with Russell next time, meaning was abandoned. More than abandoned, it was jettisoned. The idea that two plus two is four says anything about reality was thrown out. It's about sets and the relationship of sets arbitrarily defined with no connection to reality. It's a little worse than that actually, as we'll see next time, but that's essentially it. And some people think, a minority think that Gödel posed his paradox, so to speak, to show you can't, if you get rid of semantics in favor of syntax, if you get rid of meaning in favor of formal operations on formulae, you run up against this problem. Either you've got a contradiction or you've got an incompleteness because you see the incompleteness outside the system. You see, when you say, well, that can't be proved, you're, you're using your common sense. If it were proved, there'd be a contradiction. There are no contradictions in reality. So it can't be proved. You can't prove that something can't, that the statement this can't be proved is true because it can't be true. But that's not a formal operation to prove something. That's using your common sense it's outside the system of the logical language structure that the, of symbolic logic. It's, it's in English, it's in common sense. And some people think that Gödel posed it to show you can't get rid of reality. You can't get rid of common sense. You can't have a purely formal system because it'll be empty and it'll run into either the choice between contradictions and incompleteness. Okay. Uh, that's a good segue to next week's show, which I'll make on the right and wrong theories of number. I've got the right one. Bye. <laughs>